Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What is really important? Are fidget spinners important? They bring some joy. So we can't say they're not important at all. But if they had never been invented, we wouldn't be missing out on a lot. So fidget spinners are important, but not that important. So what's important? Are flowers important? This is a different level of importance, a different degree. How many romances depend upon flowers? (laughs) Flowers smell good, create beautiful scenery. There's so much poetry that's about flowers. My wife came to USI because of the flowers. So flowers are more important, we could at least say, than fidget spinners. So we're talking about degrees of what's important. What about babies? Are babies important? Are they more important than fidget spinners? Of course. Are they more important than flowers? Certainly. There are in this world degrees of importance. How much money is a baby worth? More than all the money in the world. More than all the money that could ever be in the world. So we see there's a kind of chain of importance in this life. Goes up, goes down. If we were to go to the very top of the totem pole, all the way up from fidget spinners to flowers to babies or human life, we will say, all the way to the top, what's more important than babies? What's more important than people? God. And only God, but God. And in fact, everything else on the totem pole, all the way down, is important only relative to God. The reason that people, babies included, are so important is not because they are more massive than other things in the world. They're babies especially. are very small. It's not even necessarily because they contribute more. Babies don't contribute a lot. It's because a baby is made in the image of God. Why is the baby important? Why are you important? And you are. Why? Because you exist in the image of God. In other words, you are important only relative to God who is the most important. And God is the only self-important being. He's not important relative to anyone else. He just is important. God just matters, and then everything else matters insofar as it relates to him somehow. Life is about God. There is none like me in all the earth, he says to proud Pharaoh. And David prays, you are great, O Lord God. How great? This great. For there is none like you. And there is no God besides you. And Paul, I think, as I prayed, puts it most clearly. From him and through him and to him are 
all things, the whole rest of the totem pole. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. If you want your life to count, to matter, to be important, on the one hand, it already does because you are made in God's image. But on the other hand, if you really want your life to count, to matter, it matters relative to God. Make your life about God and you will not waste your life. Make your life about anything else on the totem pole but not about God and it doesn't matter. It's like a wisp of air. It's just blown away. It will be forgotten. It will have no lasting significance because everything that really matters is about God. We call this in the church, theologically, living for God's glory. And it's what gets us up in the morning. It's everything we're about, living for God's glory. There is, in a sense, this great current in the river of life, the universe as God has designed it, and the current is strong, it is irresistible, and it is pushing in the direction of God and His glory. And you are in the river, and if you want, you can try to swim in the other direction. You can try to swim away from God and make your life about you or your job or a romantic relationship or anything, and you will be swimming with all your might against the current of how the whole universe is designed, and you will be tired and you will sink and you will die. Or you can surrender to the current of how all the universe is designed and get in line with God and what interests Him and what He's doing. Not only will it be much easier for you, but it will matter. That's the way life is. And I do urge you to make your life about God. Make it about God glorifying God. This is not just a call to those super spiritual types out there who are always talking about God. This is a call to you, a human being made in His image. Your life ought to be more than anything else about God. To that end, we have before us this text in 1 Samuel chapter 2. You know that in 1 Samuel, we've been at Shiloh the center of worship among God's people temporarily. It will later be at Jerusalem. And the priests who are in charge at Shiloh are Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. But they are bad. They are bad priests. They are dishonoring God, as we've seen in previous weeks. And what we see in our text today as God sends a prophet to rebuke them and warn of judgment is that the main issue with Eli and his sons is that they were trying to swim against the current. They were making life not about God, but about themselves. And the consequence of that is that they will die. So this passage stands as a warning to you not to do what they did. So let's look at this here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, 
Thus says the Lord. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Notice that at the start of this text, we have a man of God. And you may wonder, who is this man of God? I don't know. <laughs> you know and you don't know. There's no commentator who knows. No historian. Nobody knows who the man of God is. He's speaking in our text. He'll speak next week in the rest of this chapter. Who is he? Doesn't matter. You know what matters? that he comes bringing the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord is how he begins. And verse 30, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, and then, but now the Lord declares. This is an unknown prophet. He came in mysteriously. He's gone from the text mysteriously. God didn't think it necessary for us even to know who he was. And I'm sure he's fine with that. This passage, like all of life, it is about the Lord. Not even the messenger is named. And just as a side note, I do hope even for myself, that would be a wonderful legacy for my life. To have God's voice so loud and prominent as I'm preaching that I'm drowned out behind it. That's what happens with this prophet. We don't even know. He's just a man of God. And that really is the point of this text overall. It's that God matters. Everything else matters only relative to Him. So if you don't make your life about God, your life is whisked away. Or in this case, for Eli and Hophni and Phinehas, judgment falls. You're removed from the priesthood. And there's devastation that falls upon their house because ultimately they made their lives about themselves and not about God. They didn't honor Him. They despised Him. They made little of God. That's what they did. They made little of God. And God says, if you make little of me, you will be lightly esteemed. I will make little of you. And so I'm going to be borrowing actually that pithy statement at the end of our text today. There in verse 30 to give me the headings for what we'll be talking about. He says, those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
And especially the last half of that is what this passage is about. So first, I want to talk about those who despise God, who make little of God, who treat Him like He's not important, as Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were doing. And then we'll see the consequence. They shall be lightly esteemed. So let's look first at those who despise God. And we're looking first at the characters in our story, but this extends beyond them. To all of us today, this is true of any who despise God or make little of God today, who do not treat Him as if He is important. Look at verses 27 to 29 again. Notice how Eli's family makes little of God. There came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me, by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. The spotlight here is actually upon Eli. We have talked a lot about the sins of his sons, and we'll talk some about that again, but the man of God is focused on Eli. He says these things to Eli about Eli. And that's where we're going to direct our focus here, to look at Eli, how he despises God. That's what the text is saying. Notice before we even look at the specific sin of Eli that we'll be looking at, notice that our text begins, the man of God begins by pointing out the audacity of Eli's sin against God. God is more upset at Eli for what he has done, then he would be upset at someone who is not a priest. It is because of Eli's position. That's what he's saying here. Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? And Eli would have to answer, well, yes. Yes. God had revealed himself to Eli's forefather all the way up, not only to Levi, but down from Levi to Aaron, father of all priests in Israel. Not only Aaron, but Aaron's son, Ithamar. It seems Eli was descended from Ithamar, so down to Ithamar. And I think in our text when he says, I revealed myself to your father and your father's house, I think he's referring mainly to Ithamar, one of the sons of Aaron. I'll explain later why I think that is. But God is saying, the reason your sin against me, making little of me and honoring your sons is so audacious is because of what I did for you. It's because I set you apart. You are a part of the priestly line through Ithamar, and here you have your own house, your sons, and you serve as near to God as it's possible to serve in the Old Testament, right there where the Ark of the Covenant, where God's special presence dwells, there they are, and they can't get any closer to God. Such a high privilege. And to think that they had come from where? The house of Pharaoh. 
That's what he says. You were subject to Pharaoh. You started so small, and I revealed myself not only to Israel in rescuing them out of Egypt, but by the time God had rescued his people out of Egypt, Aaron and probably his sons were grown, Ithamar included, came out, went to Mount Sinai, and God said, I choose of everyone, of all the tribes, of all the people, I choose Aaron, I choose Ithamar. You will be priests and your descendants after you, leading down to Eli. And there's a sense in which that's renewed every generation for each generation of priests. He says, I chose your father's house and I chose your house. I revealed myself to your house by making you priests. Josephus says that Eli was descended from Ithamar. Uh, There's an apocryphal book that says he was from one of Aaron's other sons, Eleazar. I think, though, he was from Ithamar, and like I said, we'll come back to that point later in this sermon. Now, the questioning concerning the audacity of Eli's sin continues in verse 28. Did I choose him? probably Ithamar here. Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Again, the answer that Eli is supposed to give is yes. Yes, God, you did give us This number of massive privileges. At that time, especially because it's before the monarchy under Saul and David, this is the highest position of honor in the nation. In the nation. To be the priests. To draw near to God. And God had chosen Eli's forefathers, and he had chosen Eli and his house to do this very thing. It is a massive privilege. And that's why he asked, why then? If I did all of this, For you, such a privilege, why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling right here, right near me? Do you have the audacity for me to bring you so close and then you this close to me to scorn me every day? There's an audacity about their sin. That's why the judgment that's about to fall on Eli's house will be a strong judgment. But it's because God lifted them so high up. And so they're going to fall so far down. Jesus talks about this dynamic of punishment in the New Testament when he says, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. As a side note, this is one of the reasons that human judgment in general by God is so severe. The doctrine of hell is a heavy doctrine, that there would be a place of unending torment and that anyone would go there breaks our heart. That's rather intense. But one of the reasons that there's such a severe judgment is because of the audacity of our sin when God has done so much for us to create us out of nothing in his own image. We didn't make ourselves, but our creator made us and therefore possesses all rights over us. And then for him, like Paul says, to give us good 
by giving us rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness, granting you a thanksgiving feast and all sorts of feasts throughout your life and pleasures and joys creating you with the capacity for relationships, romantic and otherwise, giving you some sort of family, allowing you to experience, even if you've had a very difficult life, so many good things. God has privileged us beyond what we could ever imagine or deserve. He's lifted us so high above the angels. And therefore, to despise Him from our position of immense privilege results in a greater judgment because of the audacity of it. For Him even to send His own beloved Son, whom He did not send into the world for animals. It's not for monkeys. It's not to redeem donkeys. It's to redeem human beings. They're close to the top of the totem pole of importance because we're made in His image and He gives His own Son and He doesn't withhold Him. And He gives Him so that we can be saved if we just do what we really ought to do anyways, which is to acknowledge that we've rejected God, and to turn from our sin, and to turn to Him. That's all He calls us to do. So to say, I'm just not going to do that. Then there is a great judgment that follows, because we're falling from a place of immense privilege. And that's what's happening in this text with Eli and his sons. That's what the prophet is pointing out. God is saying through the prophet, I did as much as I can do for you, more than I did to anyone else in Israel, for your good and benefit. Why then are you treating me as unimportant? Also, if we're speaking of the audacity of the sin that's being committed here, there's an element, you can probably sense it, of hypocrisy in Eli. Because last week, in verse 23, Eli asked his sons this question, Why do you do such things? They were violently taking advantage of the sacrifices and fattening themselves, as we see in our text today, too. They were sleeping with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tabernacle. And Eli comes to them, and as their father, concerned for them, says, why are you doing this? Now, when you go to verse 29, what is the question that God asks Eli? Why? It's the same question. So it was right for Eli to ask that of his sons. Why are you doing these terrible things before God? God himself will judge you. If you sin against a man, God can intercede. But if you sin against God, what hope is there for you? That's good. The problem is that Eli was not taking his own counsel. And so now a prophet has to come to Eli and say, Eli, good, ask your sons why, but ask yourself why. Why, Eli? You're complicit in their sins. Why haven't you removed your sons? Don't say, why are you doing that? No, remove your sons, see? Remove them. So why haven't you done that? Eli could ask his sons, why are you fattening yourselves on the best of the sack? No, Eli, why are you fattening yourself on the best of the sacrifices? There's a hypocrisy in Eli as much, you know, I feel some sympathy for Eli. He's not sinning in the same way that his sons are sinning. But it's clear in our text here, there is a complicity because he would not remove his sons. And I do think there is a counsel here for all fathers and for all parents, really, 
with the grace of God, of course, but there is a real warning here that we not expect better behavior of our children than we expect of ourselves. Do not say to your children, why don't you have self-control? If God can say to you, why don't you have self-control? Why are you getting so angry? (laughs) See the hypocrisy there? That's a problem. Why are you getting so angry? There's an expectation that if we're going to instruct our children, we first instruct ourselves. Jesus taught us this very principle. It's what should spirit of which should have guided Eli, when he said in the Sermon on the Mount, why do you see the speck that's in, in this case, your son's eye, but you don't notice the log in your eye? And Jesus' counsel was, if you get the log out of your eye, then you'll see better, and you can help your sons with the speck in their eye. But as it was, Eli was trying to correct his sons when a log was in his own eye. There is a hypocrisy about this. As important as it is that Eli verbally correct his children, and as important as it is that you verbally instruct your children, you are called to, especially you fathers, your children need to hear and see God's word in your life. They need both, but if they were only to get one or the other from you, it would be better for them to see God's word in your life than to hear it from you. Give them both, but that That has the priority, and that was not true in Eli's case. So we see, as I said, the audacity of Eli's sin because of the privilege he enjoyed from God and because of the hypocrisy of what he's doing. Now we need to turn and look at the sin itself, this despising of God. Now in verse 29, two of these rebukes from the prophet are in the plural. They are verbs in the plural, simply meaning when the prophet speaks them, when God speaks them through the prophet, they're directed at Eli and his sons. When he says, why then do you scorn, that word scorn, that's to Eli and his sons. Why do you all, y'all, scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And Eli cannot say, well, I don't scorn it, it's my son's. As we said, Eli's complicit because he did not stop them. He was the head priest. He could remove his sons, but he chose, as we find here, to honor his sons by keeping them there. He would not remove them. Yes, he said, stop doing that. It's not enough. And so the prophet addresses Eli as though he is guilty along with his sons. Then again, there's a plural when he says, you're fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel, taking that trident as his sons were having servants do, stabbing the meat, taking it with the fat on it. But we will learn at the end of Eli's life that he dies because he's heavy, because he's overweight, and he falls and breaks his neck, which suggests to us exactly what the prophet says here, that it wasn't just his sons who were eating the fatty meat coming from the sacrifices, but also Eli. That's the choicest part. They were supposed to boil the meat first, and they had a portion for the priest, but they were taking the choicest part with the fat on it, because that's how they liked it. And Eli, even if he says, hey, don't do that, at the end of the day, he's eating it too. He's fattening himself as well in a day of judgment. But what's interesting is that, although those are plural, there is just one of these charges against Eli that's in the singular, and I think it is the essence of his entire sin. 
Why then do you honor your sons above me? And we could be tempted to sympathize with Eli and think, well, it's good for a father to care about his sons, even wayward children. If you have wayward children, you should love them and care about them. And so we can, in a sense, sympathize or understand Eli so much wanting his sons to turn things around. So he leaves them in that position of honor as priests, tells them, turn things around, waiting, maybe they'll turn things around. But the way God views it is, you choose your sons over me. You are treating your sons as if they are more important than I am. Above me, that's the issue. You honor them above me, God says. This was really the highest places of honor in all of Israel. And he had left his sons there to honor them, but in so doing was dishonoring God himself. Probably Eli's hope was that he could honor both God and his sons. Leave them there. If they turn things around, they were honoring God and were honoring. But it had gotten to the point where his sons were not turning around. And he did have to make a choice. I can only honor God or honor my sons. And he honored his sons. And he left them in their position. And you see throughout the story of Eli that actually his physical eyesight is deteriorating. We're told that several times. By the end of his life, he's blind. Maybe, and I can't say this for sure, but maybe the author of this is trying to communicate that just like his physical eyesight is deteriorating over time, Eli's spiritual insight, where is that? It's like he's blind to what's really going on at Shiloh. At least he's choosing to turn a blind eye, but God says, no, you're complicit in this. If you leave your sons there, then you have a guilt from this. You're honoring your sons above me. And we know from the Old Testament. This is not like a minor infraction of God's law, but rather violates the law at the top of all the laws. Think about the Ten Commandments. The very first one is, you shall have no other gods besides me. The first of all Ten Commandments, the one at the top of the list, and I would say first in importance as well, is you only have one God. You don't honor anyone or anything else at that level. Not the false gods in that culture where there are other gods. No, 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 not them. Nor things in your life, nor people in your life. One God, Yahweh, and you honor him as God and have no other gods in that position. He accepts no challengers. And Eli took his sons and he put them up there, even above God. Again, in the New Testament, when Jesus is asked, what is the great commandment in the law, meaning the greatest? Jesus' response is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. See how it's basically the first of the Ten Commandments. You take God and he's at the top. He's the most important. And Eli loved God with some of his heart and with some of his soul, and with some of his might. But not with all of them. He loved his sons more, and he honored them above God. God wants first place in our lives because he deserves first. Who else deserves a place higher than God in your life? Nobody. Fidget spinners, look, it's all fidget spinners besides God, you know? Everything in your life, including those things that are 
genuinely important, your work and your family and romance. and These, these matter, you know. But in another sense, they're fidget spinners before God. He's at the top. He's the most important. So for us ever to take anything in our life, even at the cajoling of the culture, but for us to take anything in our life and put it even close to the top of the totem pole is a violation of God's will to the nth degree. That's what God, more than anything else, does not want for your life. Do not challenge His glory. Do not put anything else there. No gods besides me, even the second commandment. No idols. I don't want anything close. I want to be clearly first, God says, because He is. And Eli wants to honor God, but the condemnation in this text is you honor your sons above me, higher up. He did not honor God, if we take the words of verse 30. He despised him. And despise here, notice, this isn't like some active thing Eli's doing, like, oh, I just don't like God. It's not despising in that way. Eli had some kind of reverence for God. He wasn't against him. He wasn't hostile. He's not an atheist. But at the end of the day, because he did not put God first, that's the wording that's used. If you don't put God at the very top, it's, it's the same as despising him. It's making little of him. It's treating him like he's not important. May those words not apply to any of us. God must be first for us. So that is the first part of this sermon and text. Those who despise God. You see the audacity of his sin and the sin itself in despising or making little of God and exalting his sons above him. Now all that's left to us is to deal with the second part of that pithy statement, they shall be lightly esteemed. We actually are going to see most of this next week. This is the consequence. This is the judgment that takes place when we treat God like he's small. But we do get the beginning of it in verse 30. Look at that. Therefore, in consequence, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Now, you might at first feel a little concerned because, hold up, if God promised something, he can't now say, far be it from me, he promised it. But this was a promise with a condition. This is what we call a conditional promise. It's a promise you give, say, I will do this if. Children, we will go to an arcade if you clean your room, and if they don't clean their room and say, you promised an arcade, I will say, no, I did not. It was conditional, and you did not clean your room. So all is fair. And that's what's happening here. This often happens with God's promises. Some of his promises are unconditional. Your salvation, if you're in Christ, there's a sense in which there's this unconditional part of it. You are in his hand, and he will not let you go. That is our comfort. That is our hope. But there are many promises God makes that are clearly conditional. When Jonah went to Nineveh and said, yet this amount of time and this city will be overturned. And they repented and it wasn't overturned. Did God lie? No. 
Clearly, when Jonah spoke, there was an implied condition, unless you repent. So when they repented, God relented. That often happens. So there's an implied condition. The same is here. When God told Ithamar, one of Aaron's sons, you and your descendants shall be priests before me, there was an implied condition. So long as you walk faithfully before me. They, at this point in Eli's household, at this point, they are not fulfilling that condition. That's why God said, I promised that, but you are not fulfilling the condition. Therefore, far be it from me. Now, there's a lot we could get into here. We unfortunately don't have the time, but let me just say this. What is interesting is that God is going to bring judgment on Eli's household. Like I said, I think Eli was a descendant of Ithamar, the youngest son of Aaron. Aaron had four sons. The first two, Nadab and Abihu, treated God disrespectfully and died. That left Aaron two younger sons. The first was Eleazar and the second was Ithamar. So all the priests in Israel were descended through these two lines, Eleazar and Ithamar. Eli, according to Josephus, it seems, came through Ithamar. So when this is spoken of Eli's house, but also of his father's house, and then God says, far be it from me that your father's house should still be priests. That's why I don't think your father's referring to Levi or Aaron. Those are the father of Eli. But the problem is they're not removed, you know. They continue as priests. I think he's saying your father's house is Ithamar's. Because these two lines, Eleazar and Ithamar, there's a kind of division between them that we're going to see in 1 Samuel. We won't see if we continued in 2 Samuel, we'd see as well. Where by the time of David, David has a priest with him named Abiathar, who comes to him while he's hiding in a cave, like we saw in the psalm today. Abiathar's family is slaughtered by Saul. He comes to David, and it seems like Abiathar is the replacement for Eli and his household. But actually, and I may have said that before, so if so, I retract that. Abiathar is not the replacement for Eli and his family because Abiathar is a relative of Eli. He's part of Eli's household. So there, he's part of the Ithamar line, which God had promised to remove. We see this take place when we get later on. David becomes the king, and there's actually two main priests under David. One is Abiathar, his old friend, and another is named Zadok. And Zadok is descended from Eleazar. So under David, during his reign, you have two priests serving as chief priests, basically side by side. One, Abiathar and his son Ahimelech, they come through the line of Ithamar. And then you have Zadok and he comes through the line of Eleazar. But God had promised to judge the line of Ithamar. And so when David is an old man, his son Adonijah tries to take over. And Abiathar joins Adonijah's rebellion. The rebellion fails, and one of the very first acts of Solomon, David's son, is that he removes Abiathar. Notice this, 1 Kings 2.27. So Solomon expelled Abiathar for being priest to the Lord, notice, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So it all comes full circle. 
and Zadok is established as the one main priest, his line, through Eleazar. I wish we had time to say God often is fulfilling more than one thing at a time because Eleazar had a son named Phineas, not like our bad Phineas here, but he was a good Phineas, and Phineas was zealous for the Lord, and God promised Phineas, Eleazar's son, this very thing. It shall be a covenant of peace to Phineas and his descendants after him, the covenant of a perpetual priesthood. God promised that Eleazar's son Phineas would have a perpetual priesthood, and in a sense, when Abiathar was removed, God did two things. He fulfilled the curse spoken by the prophet, removed Ithamar's line of the priests, and he fulfilled the promise to Phineas. You can go read more about it yourself. We don't have time to deal with that more in depth. But that is the consequence. When he says, those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed, that's what God's doing. Removing not only Eli's house, but the whole Ithamar descent. Now this principle demonstrated in Eli and his sons is a universal principle applicable to us as well. Treat God like he's unimportant. And there is a sense in which God will treat you like you're unimportant. Because the current of life moves in the direction of God. And you can choose like Saul of Tarsus to move in the other direction, but remember how Jesus said to him, it's hard to kick against the goads when they're pushing you that way. It's so hard to live your life that way. So if you've tried to live your life for anything else but God, yourself, sexual pleasure, some substances you're addicted to, it can be good things like work and promotions, it can be your esteem in the community, it can be hopes and aspirations in your career, it can be your children having a nice happy family with the white picket fence, whatever it is, if you've tried to live your life about that above God, it's hard, isn't it? It's real hard. Because that's not the way God made life to be. God made life to be about Him. And if you've been going this way, that's what the cross of Jesus Christ is about. Where God sends His Son to forgive you for going this way. So that this kind of judgment doesn't have to crush you. It will crush Jesus in your stead. Trust in Christ. And when you trust in Christ, what God does is He changes your heart so that your life aligns with this, live your life for God's glory. Any other life is so little, it's almost invisible. Honor God with your life, and you can put to the test God's promise, not conditional, a true promise. Those who honor me, I will honor. 